All right. Good morning. It's great to see everyone. And I missed you all Wednesday night, and I thank you for your prayers. I know that there were people praying for me, and uh, I am feeling much better. So to God be the glory on that. I'm going to be preaching through First Peter. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you for your great, abundant mercy, your grace that's been given to us. Lord, just I pray, God, for your Holy Spirit to deliver this message this morning, that you would that you would get glory for yourself, that I would be true to your word, that I would speak truth by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for all those who hear it, that it would be an encouragement to the believers. It would be an encouragement in times of trouble. Um, Just as you encouraged your church so many years ago when Peter wrote this, that you would encourage us with it today, Lord, and for the next several months. Father, I pray, God, I just pray for that. I pray for those who aren't believers that you could use your word to start to open their eyes, that you would cause them to have life in their body, that you would cause them to have a a spirit, uh, life in their spirit, Lord, that they could understand truths of your word. Lord, I thank you for Nate this morning and, and what he taught and, and the very fact that what he taught is what I'm asking that you would regenerate them, that you would cause them to have life. And that's the only way they could hear. That's the only way they could understand. God, but have mercy on us. Just have mercy that we would even be inclined to worship you this morning. Have mercy that we would turn our hearts towards Christ now and that we would desire this word, that we would desire to know you better, that we would desire to live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So First Peter... I looked it up in a Bible dictionary and it said this. It said, it's a letter of hope in the midst of suffering and testing. I thought that's a really, really good way to describe it. And I think about the time that we're living in. I would say that it is, we're in a time of suffering and testing. I guess Christians have been in a time of suffering and testing ever since Christ came. But when you look at our country and where we live, this time of suffering and testing seems to be nearing, it, it seems to be heating up. Um, there's definitely some uncertainty um, with our way of life. We don't know what's coming. If you, if you just look around, there's so much turmoil amongst our people, not, not Christians, but amongst our, our country, um, even within local governments, local things there's there's just turmoil there's so much you can go on a college campus and it and you find even more there's so many things different ideas about just how life is supposed to be people don't understand what life is like and so i thought and it, and it looks like it could possibly get worse other than god intervening and causing a great revival in america it's probably going to get worse the persecution on Christians is going to get worse. Um, our financial situation as a country 
doesn't look like it's going to get a whole lot better. And as these things are coming, I thought the book, the book of First Peter would be so fitting for us to prepare for that, to prepare for what God is going to have for us. Because when it comes, we're going to be called on to have an answer. People's going to be going here and there looking for some answers, looking for some solutions. What are we going to do? And us as the people of God need to be solid in that time. We don't need to be in turmoil as well. We need to go, you know what? We have a God who's on the throne and he has solutions. He has the answers to your problem, but you're looking at, everybody's going to be looking at the temporal problem and we're going to say, you know what? We have an eternal God and we can show you how to have eternal life. And so that's, that's something that, and in order to do that, we have to have great faith and great um, confidence in our God. So to give a little bit of the background of this, it's dated around A.D. 65, so 30-some years after Christ was crucified and resurrected um, is when this book was written. It was shortly after the city of Rome burned. I don't know how well you are familiar with history, but around A.D. 64 or so, Nero was in charge of the Roman Empire, and much of the Roman Empire caught on fire and burned to the ground. And it certainly appears that Nero did it. And I didn't know this. I was studying this out. Has anybody ever used the computer program Nero? Did you ever wonder why it was called Nero? I always thought, huh, it's like the Roman Empire. Well, the reason it's called Nero is because it was main purpose was to burn CDs. That's why it was called Nero. I thought, wow, I, I didn't know that. So Nero, it, it, um, he burns the city for whatever reason. He wasn't exactly a um, sane person. Um, but the when it burned, that was the Romans. I mean, it, it burned up their possessions. It burned up their idols. It burned up their temples. All of their false gods took a hit. All these things were going on, and so they were, I mean, they lost their houses, they lost their businesses, all these things, so there's this big pressure going on Nero, and so what does he do? He turns it, and he says, oh, the, he blames it on the Christians. The Christians started the fire. It was an easy scapegoat, because, you know, there was, they didn't like Christians anyway, so we'll blame it on those Christians, and it's their fault that the place burned. Well, you can imagine what that would do towards a people that they already don't like. Now you blame all of this loss on the Christians, and that just amped up the persecution. And so Peter's writing this letter in this time um, that the persecution was really getting heated up, not only in the areas that were burned, but it was just, that stuff, once that stuff starts... It builds a frenzy, it builds a fire, and it fuels more fuel of the fire, and you get mob mentalities. And you can see this happening in our, in our country, in our culture, in other countries, um, even in the West, that you get these mob mentalities going, and all of a sudden, or Internet, it's even worse, but all of a sudden people that wouldn't say anything just talking to me and you, but they get in a mob and they'll throw whatever. They'll start throwing stuff at you. They'll, they'll yell and scream and cuss and, and all kinds of profanity 
in these mobs, well, that's what's going on in Rome at this time. And it, and it was clearly um, an extremely difficult time. It was a difficult time for everybody, but it was much more difficult for the Christians because of the persecution. The author of the book is clear that it was First Peter. Um, he's identified the very first verse. And there, in the time period, because of Peter's prominence, because of who he was, um, an apostle of Christ, kind of the leader of the apostles, the one um, who's kind of taken that charge, ta- preaches the first sermon in the book of Acts, there were a lot of false things being written under Peter's name. But this is not one of them. This was clearly, um, it had very, very little question at any time of the author's authenticity, that it was Peter. Um, You can see a lot of similarities when you read through Peter, and then you go back and read that first sermon in the book of Acts. You can see a lot of similarities in the language. And that, that points to the authenticity of it here. The early church members accepted it almost unanimously as being Scripture, as being Peter as the author. Many, many early church writings, including Polycarp, who was John's apostle, um, re- referenced First Peter. So the authenticity of it is not in question. Um, the importance of it is obviously not in question because it is God-breathed. So it is Scripture, and it is profitable for us for many things most importantly i think comfort in these times of uh in these times of that we live so having said that let's go ahead and get into the first verse of chapter one i I think what i'll do I'll, i'll just go ahead and read down through chapter five he says peter an apostle of jesus christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. So the very first verse, it says, he's Peter, he's an apostle. He's from a family of humble origin. He went from a fisherman to an apostle. And I'm not going to go a lot into the background of Peter. I think a lot of people probably have, have that somewhat in in their knowledge, um, you can go read the Gospels. He was there with Jesus for almost the entire for Jesus almost the entire ministry. Of course, Andrew is the one who brought him in, brought him to meet the Lord. And you know, Peter was Peter's that guy. I, I can I can kind of relate to him when you read through the Gospels. He he wasn't just like the most intelligent person, but when he got something, boy, he got it. And it sometimes took a few times for him to, for it to click, right? Peter was sometimes the one that, but he was honest. He was, he was up front. He was, he was kind of a transparent kind of guy. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to fake anything. 
And um, it's pretty amazing to go watch Peter if, if you read through the narratives and see how he was always ready to jump out there. You remember with the, when Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter's, I want out there too. He says, come on. You know, and he's walking on the water with Christ. Of course, we know how it ended. He, he got scared and he, he started to sink. But he was the only one that jumped out there. You know, he was kind of a, he, he was not afraid. And then, but then on the night of the crucifixion, Peter said, I'll, I'll never turn away from you, Lord, right? I, I'm never going to, that's what he said. And Jesus said, before the, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And you, and you go read that, and it's just heartbreaking because you know Peter's heart. And, and you know your heart. And you know that I, at the best, I, I would have been saying the same thing. I'd have talked the big game just like Peter did. But then when it come down to it, would I have even been close enough to deny him? You know, they said this man was with him. Well, the reason they were saying that is because he's down there close to the action. He's wanting, you can just, you can just kind of tell, Peter's wanting to be there with him. But in, it, the fear just grips him. But then, shortly after, in the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and man, Peter stands up, and he delivers the blow. This, this man, you killed him. He's both Lord and Christ. I mean, so to see Peter transformed through this time is really awesome to watch. And it's awesome because if God transforms Peter from being afraid, from being um, weak, and in his weakness he can use it for strength, he can do that for each one of us um, in Christ. So that's encouraging to see those things. So Peter is an apostle. He's one of a special group of men who were called and commissioned by Christ. And he ministered with Christ after his resurrection. He's one of the group of men in whom the foundation, foundational teaching of the church came. Right? Our doctrine is established on the apostles' doctrine. It's not just on the Gospels. It's not just on what Jesus said when he was on this earth, but because Peter is an apostle, what he established after Christ ascended was the same as what Christ established when he was here. That's the apostles' doctrine. It is the Word of God. The entire Word of God is just as Christ said it himself. And then he says, listen to this, he says, to the pilgrims, of the dispersion to the pilgrims. I thought so much about this as I was studying. I thought there's so many terms that we can use, and I love this term. I think that maybe us as Christians need to start using some of the language that the apostles used more. I think it would cause people to look at us a little bit differently, and I think it would help us to open doors to have more conversations with the lost. Because they're so used to hearing Christians. And, it's, and Christian is a biblical term, but it's not used that much. But when Paul addresses in letters, he uses terms like saints, um, brethren. Peter here uses pilgrim. So what is a pilgrim? It is a stranger in a land that is not their own. The word itself reminds us that this world is not our home. 
I can't think of the word pilgrim. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you can't hardly think of the word pilgrim without thinking of that book. Um, Or if you've heard the CD, it's great too. But you think about that and you have a pilgrim. We're not part of this world. If we would remember that, it would help us so much in our daily lives. It would help us so much to fight the idols that we deal with. The idols that I deal with, the time that I waste on things of this world that have no eternal value. I saw a great um, illustration the other day. Was that David Platt with the rope, Paul? Or was it Francis Chan? Francis Chan. He had this rope, and it just went on. It looked like forever. And he's holding the rope, and he's got this little bitty piece of tape on the end, maybe an inch. He's like, this rope represents eternity. And this little tape here, this little inch, this little blue spot is our life. And he's like, we're spending all of our time and effort on this. How much are you spending on the rest of it? How much are you spending on the rest of the rope? And I thought, how, how fitting is that for us as pilgrims? To be strangers in a land, and yet we act like we're, we act like this is our home. We act like this is the end of it. But no, we're we're simply pilgrims. And I think that's a, that maybe a term we should use more often to refer to one another. Um, but it's a temporary journey. We're not here uh, in any kind of permanent basis, so we shouldn't be acting like we are. And then he, he gives the the places who he's writing to, the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these are in modern-day Turkey. So this is the Middle East we're talking about. Um, It's the general area. When you look at Paul's missionary journeys, he went through these countries. So a lot of the people who he is sending this letter to, these are Christians, these are pilgrims in this land. They are very likely have been touched by Paul's missionary journeys. They're churches who were established by Paul or churches that have been established by churches who are established by Paul. We're not exactly sure about that, but we know that this is a general um, outcome. It's a general result of Paul's missionary journeys through there. Um, and and these all of these places that he's talking about were part of the Roman Empire under the under the um, authority of Nero, so that kind of goes back to the suffering and things that were going on after the fire and all of that. All right, so verse two, he says, "Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father." These pilgrims are the elect of God. This simply means they're chosen. They, that they and we are chosen by God. If you skip ahead to chapter 2, look at verse 9 and 10. He says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, and you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's what it means to be elect. That's what it means to be chosen. I know that that's a, it's like a controversial word 
within Christianity today, but it shouldn't be. Peter uses it freely. Peter uses it like it's not controversial. You know why? Because it's not. It shouldn't be. Why? Because we're chosen by God, and that should be a good thing. That is a good thing, to be chosen by him, to be a royal priesthood. I mean, that's incredible. To be a people who weren't a people, to obtain mercy who had no mercy, that's what elect means. It's not a bad word. It's an incredible doctrine. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, here a lot of people make a mistake and they get foreknowledge confused with foresight. A lot of people will say, and I was probably one of them at one point, that would say, God will look into the future and he will see who's going to choose him. And because of this for, they would say knowledge, it's actually foresight, then I'll choose them. Which really, I mean, it sounds good on the surface, but it's really very circular. It doesn't make any sense. Like, well, who chooses who then? Well, God chooses them, but only because they chose him but they didn't know it because he's looking into the future no that's that's really just confusing it sounds good it kind of explains it away but the truth is it can also be translated foreordained which makes maybe more sense that's definitely not foresight it's foreknowledge it means a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of god now who who predetermined it who has that capability. It's not us. No, God predetermined his relationship. It's forethought. It's forearrangement. All of this thing's happening before even the foundation of the world. Before you ever thought about God, he chose you. Before you ever thought about pursuing Christ, before you ever thought about repenting of your sins, just like Nate was teaching this morning, we don't even have the capability to repent. We don't even have the capability to believe apart from regeneration, apart from God's grace coming down and changing the inside of us. That new birth, that's what gives us the capability. But he did it before we ever even knew we existed. Before we even had a self-awareness, God had the forethought, he had the prearrangement. So therefore being the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father is keeping with His plan, which was designed beforehand. He's keeping with His plan by His elect. That's what He does. He has the plan established before the foundation of the world. The plan is for the purpose of His glory. And by having elect people, because He didn't have to have any of us for justice, He could have very well written off the entire race, but he didn't for his glory, and by, so by having the elect, he is keeping us in his plan, or he's keeping with his plan. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians, in the next verse, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. 
So what's the purpose? Or what's, when did it happen? Before the foundation of the world. What's the purpose? For his pleasure. For his will. Being adopted. So how does this happen? Very next part of that verse. It happens in the sanctification of the Spirit. We are elect in the, sanctifi- in the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit. We are elect for the purpose of obedience. Look at the, look, just skip forward to verse 14. It says, Obedient children, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. So the perp- it is, we are elect in the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, calls us out, separates us from the rest of the world. And just like Denny was asking questions today, the, the world has a hard time seeing that sanctification. And physically there is no change. Well, although sometimes I can see a physical change. Have you ever noticed, and it's, it's more of a countenance type thing, but when somebody is saved and they're truly born again, there is a difference. We, we minister in the prison some, and there's guys who we know who are, who are Christians, and you see them, and then you, you can go on the DOC website and, and see their, the mug shot. And you look at them and you think, man, that doesn't even look like the same guy. And it may not even be a lot of facial changes. It's just you look at a hardened criminal and then you look at a Christian. There is a difference. There's a physical difference, but there's not always. I don't think there was a physical difference with me. I looked the same, but there was no doubt a difference. Sometimes it happens a little more subtly, though. Sometimes it happens a little more slowly. If you go back and find the people I went to high school with, and you tell them that um, I hang out with a rapper, they will not believe you. They're like, what? A rapper? Yeah, I mean, I was, a, I was extremely, um, I was a racist guy. I didn't like rap music, mainly because I was racist. But God changed that. He changed me. Um, I, would have, I would have had a real problem with homosexuality, but not because it was a sin laid out by God, although I would have used that. But I just hated it. Why? Because I, I didn't like it. It wasn't what I was. There was a hatred for r- different races. There was a hatred for homosexuals. And now... And that's something that I think we need to learn as well when we're dealing with these in particular sins. People think we have this hatred towards it. No, you don't understand. I used to have a hatred. And now I have a love for those people. The people of different races I have a love for, although there are some sin problems within some cultures. And that's why I love what Dylan does. That's why I love what OB does. Because they're reaching out to cultures that have a sin problem. And don't all, don't all of our cultures that we come from have a sin problem? I know mine, I have more of a, more of a country background, more of a cowboy type thing. You think there's not a sin problem there? I mean, are you serious? Just, I mean, it, it's, it's everywhere. It's just different. And, and they, they hate each other because they're so different, but really they're the same. They're really at all at enmity with God. And they don't realize they're, they're fighting on the same side of the fence. 
But I didn't mean to get off on that. But, but we are being sanctified. And, and the purpose of that sanctification is for obedience. It's for obedience to Christ. And when we start getting into that obedience, then that's when people will start to see a difference. They'll start, start to see a difference in how we behave, how we talk, where we go, where we spend our time, what we like to do, the things we listen to, the things we watch. All of those things are important for not only our sanctification, which they are, but also for the witness to the world. And then he says, for, the, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this brings to my mind the picture of the sprinkling of the blood of the lamb on the altar in the Old Testament. They would kill the lamb and they would sprinkle the blood. And of course that was there just for a picture of the lamb of God. The ultimate sacrifice. The true lamb of God who was Christ. So it reminds us of the gospel in which Jesus' blood, it covers and it pays and it takes away our sin. And we don't ever want to leave that out. And you notice how Peter here, he's writing to believers. He's writing to the churches, but he goes back and he talks about the sprinkling of the blood. So this is what, this is what we're looking at here. In times of trouble, what is this? I'm just going over things that a lot of us already know. I'm just going over more things, the foreknowledge of God. Yeah, we get that. But to be, to overcome our troubles, we look to the gospel. We look back to the cross. We look back to Christ. No matter what happens, the gospel stands. No matter what happens, it has not changed. He has not changed. And so when we look back and we see that Jesus' blood still covers a multitude of sins, we look at our country and there's a, it, it's so exceedingly sinful right now. We are in a land that is obvious that we call good evil. And we call evil good. But we have the solution Pilgrims, we have the solution. The solution is Christ and the sprinkling of his blood on the altar. When he died and he gave his life and he received the punishment that we deserved, that's the solution to the sin. We have the cure. And that is good news. No matter what happens out there, the cure is still good. They cannot take that away from us. No matter what they do, they cannot take him away from us. So that's encouraging. And then look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So remember, Peter's writing this letter to people in great distress, under great suppression and great persecution. I don't, I don't know how much you know about Nero, but he would have Christians actually killed, dipped in pitch, in pine tar, and would light them on fire on the streets of Rome. This is, that's an evil man. That is a man. And, but what I, what I thought, I mean, everybody thinks, how evil is that man? What manner of people would walk those streets? This is not just a Nero thing. This was the entire culture. 
And I wonder if, if that happened here, how many people would just walk by and use the light? Well, at least I don't have to trip on the curb. I mean, what manner of people was this? They're all evil, just like Nate was talking this morning. Depravity is depravity. Dead is dead. And if you don't believe it, wait until people get hungry. Wait until things really get bad and the government pulls all of its funding and, and people really get hungry. People get mean. People get violent. They turn into animals in a very fast way. And that's what was happening in Rome. That was, that's what was going on. And the Christians were being blamed for all of it, so they were getting the double portion of the persecution. Not only were they starving too, not only were they struggling with the same economic and all the problems that were going on, but now they're getting beat. They're getting killed. They're getting thrown into the Colosseum and having lions devour them for people's entertainment. And so that's what Peter is giving encouragement here. And so they were nothing but a scapegoat for Nero to take the heat off him, which we could see that happening real easy here. If there's any way that a politician could gain politically by blasting the Christians, by blaming Christians, they'll do it in a heartbeat. But now, thinking of that, this is what Peter says to him. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, to lead the mind to praise God is one of the surest ways of uplifting it from depression. When things get bleak, when things get hard, the best thing to do is to lead our minds, lead your family's minds, lead other Christians' minds, to praise God. That's what we do. That will bring you out of that depression. That will bring you out of that despair. Why? Because it takes the mind off of your situation. It takes the mind off of yourself, which we are so inclined to do. We're so inclined to think about ourselves so often. But if we can take our minds off of that, if we can lead our minds, and that's what Peter's doing here with them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just simple. It sounds so simple, but it's so profound. Take our mind off of, off of the persecution that's going on in Rome. Take your mind off of the persecution that's going on here, and you put it, and you praise God. Because the gospel still stands. He makes it personally. He talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. Just that right there. Just the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Doesn't that help? Doesn't that help you deal with whatever? Pro I, mean, I mean, and I know these problems are real. I know people here have real things that they're dealing with financially, health-wise. Um, there's deaths in families. There's real struggles going on. But just the fact that Jesus is your Lord, that should help. Doesn't that help? When everything else is falling apart, God the Father is still blessed, and Jesus Christ is still our Lord. And he says, who according to his abundant mercy, I taught on mercy last week, apart from mercy, justice condemns us. Justice condemns us apart from mercy. 
Holiness dwarfs us. It makes us insignificant. Power crushes us. The law demands our lives. And wrath will fulfill it. Apart from mercy, that's what we get. We get justice. We get condemnation. We're insignificant. We're crushed. Our lives would be... we, We die. We deserve to die. And we deserve the wrath of God, which will fulfill all of that. But God who is rich in mercy. When everything else has fallen apart, God's mercy is still abundant. God's mercy is still great. And it is in His mercy that hope begins. So the message that we're going to have to the world when all of this gets completely turned on its head, when everything's going apart, it's going to happen. We don't know when, but it's getting, it's getting worse all the time. There's people out there right now wandering to and fro that have no idea why they're here. Their, their weak answers are, are they're starting to realize they're weak. What's the purpose of life? Nobody has an answer to that except for us. We're the only ones. So what are we going to tell them? We're going to tell them, you know what? You may have done a lot of bad things. You are a sinful person. But my God, the one who gave you life, the one who gave me life, he is abundant in mercy. And he's provided an escape. He's provided a way. He's provided a solution. And it's in that mercy that all hope begins. So if you want hope, this is the message we can tell the world. If you want hope, it begins in the mercy of God. Let me tell you about him. It has to be abundant mercy. It has to be. We can't even picture how abundant the mercy has to be. Why? Because how abundant is our sin? It has to be. It has to be greater than our sin. And we don't want to start measuring up. We don't want to start adding up our sin to see just how abundant it is. Because it's truly abundant. But his mercy is more. His mercy is more abundant. And then he says what? He says a living hope. Abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Begotten us again. That's what we heard about this morning, regeneration. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. What can a dead man do? Nothing. What did God do? He brought us to life. You have he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's brought you to life to a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Because Christ did not stay in the grave. He did not stay in the tomb. We serve a living Savior. When the world is falling apart, we're the only ones who can say, My God is alive. Can the, can the Muslims say Muhammad is alive? No, they can say Allah, but he's so impersonal. They don't even know who he is. They got, it's all about Muhammad. And Muhammad is dead. He's still in the ground. Is, is, I mean, just go through, you can go down the list. I mean, you have the Hindus who have all kinds of false gods who do nothing because they're false gods. Is Buddha still alive? No, he's dead. Jesus Christ is alive. There's no other religion like this in the world. And the, and the atheists will say, oh, those religions are the same. Just show them the difference. They don't know. They don't understand. Show them. No, let me show you. Let me show you how Christianity is different. 
They tried to kill our God. Matter of fact, they did, except it wasn't really them. He laid down his life because they didn't have the power to do it, but he gave it. So he was dead for three days. Three days he was dead. He laid in a tomb. But the grave could not hold him. Is that good news? That's as good a news as you can have. And that, that God, the one who created us, the one who gave us breath, came out of the grave and he can, you can have a personal relationship. You can cry, Abba, Father. It's not at a distance. It's not like you stay over there. No. He, he will embrace us. He will gather us up, wrap his arms around us. And then he says in, in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. An incorruptible inheritance. Rust cannot harm it. Termites cannot penetrate it. Fire can't even melt it. This inheritance is incorruptible. It is like no other inheritance on this earth. We are going to be heirs. We're heirs to the throne. We're heirs to the kingdom of God with Christ. He's on the throne. We are his bride. That means the kingdom is ours. An incorruptible kingdom that will never go away. It will never fall to war. It will never have an enemy that can penetrate it. That's what, that's what he says in Galatians. He says you are heirs with Christ, with the Son of God, with the Creator. You're an heir of that. So no matter what happens on this earth, no matter what they do to you, they cannot take away your inheritance, which is incorruptible. But then it also, he goes another, he goes another step. He says to, it's undefiled. It's incorruptible and undefiled. To an undefiled inheritance. See, when you get an inheritance on this earth, somebody passes away, you get this big inheritance. There's a very good chance that it was defiled. At some point, some of that wealth could have been uh, not completely honest. Maybe it's not always that way, but there's a very good chance. Why? Because we're all living in this sinful world. And, and then, not only to say that it could have been gotten that way, but then once you get it, once I get it, I could allow it to come defiled. Because I'm not perfect. I'm not God. I'm weak in ways. So on these temporal inheritances that we talk about, these temporal things, all of this, I mean, whether it's money or land or whatever, it could have been gotten by fraud. It could have been achieved by violence of some sort or oppression of the poor. It could have been tainted. But our inheritance, this undefiled inheritance, was won, how? By obedience, perfection, and the suffering of Christ. It cannot be defiled. It cannot be corrupted. It will stand forever. It is perfect. That's the inheritance that we want. They can have all this, can't they? Don't we just want enough? To be able to live in a way that we can proclaim Christ, isn't that enough? And so when our minds, and I know mine does this, starts thinking about ways that, hey, I could gain a little more here and I could gain a little more here and I, I'd really like to do, 
it's something that you really got to keep in check. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing well. But there is definitely something wrong with doing well in the place of doing well for the kingdom of Christ. And so you have to keep your heart in check in that. And keep our mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. So, and that, and that, no matter what happens here, because there's a good, very good chance, whatever you do here, whether it's with the right heart or whether it's not, and you build up earthly possessions, it's all going to burn. It, it just doesn't matter. But the inheritance that we receive, the inheritance that we have waiting for us, is not. It, it will last forever. And then verse 5 who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who are kept by the power of God. We are like a, we're like a city under attack. Look at this in an individual way for you, but picture a city. Picture it under attack, but kept by the power of God. The fortress that has been built will stand. And so... God will allow them to assemble against you. He'll allow Satan and his angels to come at you. We can see that in Scripture. And he'll allow them to attack. And Satan will come in full force. He'll come with temptations. He'll come with sickness. He'll come with death. He'll come with destruction. He'll fire every weapon of false religion at us, at you. He'll attack your families. He'll attack your friends. And I, think, I don't think this is a big news flash, but he will lie, and he will cheat, and he will steal. And the people who he manipulates to come against you will lie, they will cheat, they will steal. You know, I was reading, a, I read a blog the other day, um, and this, I don't, I don't know if, it, I think it may have been actually the girl that I know that did this, I, I got to talk to her and find out, but she sent, she got on Craigslist in all kinds of different areas on some of those discussion things, and just asked for non-believers, non-Christians, to put on there why they don't like Christianity or why they don't like Christians or something like that. And then she posted a bunch of the comments. And I was reading down through the comments, and I thought, hey, you, there may be some good stuff in there. And there, and there was. There's some things that... For sure, we need to clean up. Even I, I mean, I was convicted in some ways, like, yeah, I, I probably don't have the compassion that I should. I probably don't have the love that I should in certain areas, those kind of things. But there was a lot of the comments. It was just like, every Christian I see just talks about how sinful I am and how they hate me and this and that. And, it, and there was a bunch of those, a bunch of those, just one after the other after the other. And, I, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I, I've been in Christianity for a while. And most Christians I see are afraid to engage sinners, much less tell them they're going to hell. The truth is, these people are probably lying. They hate Christianity because they're at enmity with Christ. They don't like us because they don't like Him. It's just like Ronnie said this morning, the, the guy that had all the contradictions in the Bible. He said, well, name one. And well, it came down, what it came out with was... The Bible contradicted his lifestyle. So he doesn't like it. And that's the truth. But, but listen, 
in this battle that we're fighting, Satan will manipulate people. His angels will manipulate people and their own depravity leads this way anyway. They will lie. They will lie to make the church look bad. They will lie to make Christians look bad. That's what Satan does. He lies, he cheats, he steals. He's using all of the weapons that he has, everything that he has. You can picture this city standing there and the fire, fireballs blasting it. Bombs being dropped on it. Explosions everywhere. But our great captain, he's built this fortress unpenetrable. He, hasn't, he will not allow him a weapon that can penetrate this fortress. It is the power of God. This city under fire is surrounded by omnipotence. By the all-powerful God. What can Satan do against that? He can do nothing. He can't penetrate this fortress. He can't penetrate your heart, which the omnipotent God gave you. God is saving us through these attacks. And which is one of the most amazing things about salvation is the fact that God will save you and then he will leave you where you are in a perverse world and keep you. That's glorifying to him. That is glorifying to him. He can leave us in this fallen world and keep us. Why? So he can reveal us in the last time for final victory and glory. That's what it says. We are kept by the power of God through faith, through our belief, he cannot take that away from us. You can't, they cannot take the belief away. Ready to be revealed in the last time. So in that time, when God, is, when God is finished, when his work is complete, and when time shall be no more, he will reveal all of his true followers, all of his true pilgrims. And we won't be pilgrims any longer. He will take us home. And it will be strictly for his glory. And that calls us to worship. That calls us to say, wow. And maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to repent of the things that we're doing, the things that we're putting our time in, the things that we're so concerned about, although maybe good things. But maybe we need to think more on blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When all else is going crazy, if the military comes and takes this city and, and takes us prisoner and separates us from our families and separates us from one another and starts persecuting, whipping, imprisoning, even martyring our brothers and sisters and us. This does not change. It didn't change then. It was sufficient for this time. When Nero was lighting Christians on fire, it is sufficient for now. And how do we react? We, act, we, we react like Christ. We praise the Father. We praise the Son. We praise the Holy Spirit for the work that he has already done in us. And he will reveal us at that last time. And the weapons will not penetrate. But he will keep us. And it will be for his glory 
and His glory alone. And there's no better way. There's no better way to live, whether it be in good times or in bad times, whether it be under oppression or in abundance. To be revealed in the last time for His glory is the greatest thing that any of us could ever have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you. I, I thank you for Peter and the Holy Spirit in writing this book, which is so relevant to us in this time. Um, it's so relevant to your church in this day and age. I, I, I praise you for it. I, I praise you for the testimony of the saints that we have from then until now who have been strong in the faith, which is only by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I know, God, that I am weak. Lord, I pray that you would use my weakness when the time comes to be bold for Christ. I pray that for each of the the believers here, in their weakness, when the time comes, they would you would use it to be bold for Christ. You would get your glory from their weakness. And their weakness would become strength, God. And I just praise you. I pray for better spiritual preparation in my mind and my soul. Lord, that whatever's coming our way, and you know what it is, we don't. Whatever's coming our way, that you would have us prepared spiritually speaking. And that we would be so in tune with the Holy Spirit that he would guide us. And that he would bless us. That he would strengthen us in those times and that the world would look on and go, wow, what manner of man, what manner of woman is this that can stand so solid in this midst of a trial, in this midst of suffering? There must be something and, and then you would get the glory, Father. I pray for that. I pray, God, for just our time here together this afternoon. You would bless us, bless us with good fellowship. I thank you so much for what you've done here and the, the new the new relationships that we're building and, and just everything that you're doing and I thank you for the the musicians and singers and I pray for each of them, God, that your blessings would be on their music, on their song selection, on everything that you, it would all be in providence for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat>